0: Hey you, want access to exclusive secret ops intel? Check out the link in the description.
1: But they don't invest any money in innovation, you know, less than 1% of their budgets. But they are the biggest, um, biggest spenders in terms of politics and manipulating policy and regulations. And so it just shows that they're in this very protectionist phase that They want to protect their monopolies instead of embracing the opportunity to um, change the whole dynamic of the system.
0: Welcome to Secret Ops, the podcast uncovering the world of operations, one episode at a time. I'm your host, Ariana Caffone, and today's guest is Gareth Evans, the CEO of Vecna, which is a company that accelerates and simplifies the deployment of energy solutions on site for companies globally. This interview made me feel kinda like a kid in a candy store because I have so many questions around energy and how you go about even tackling this problem. Where do you start? How do you navigate all of the operational complexities? And I have to tell you that Gareth explained things in a way that made me see this industry differently and made me rethink a lot of the assumptions I had going into this conversation. So let's jump in. Garrett, thank you so much for joining us on Secret Ops today. I am thrilled to talk about a topic that's been on my my bucket list since starting Secret Ops, which is about energy. and You are the man to talk to about it, <laughs> clearly.
1: I'm excited to uh, go on this journey with you.
0: <laughs> so Let's talk about your career and how you got into the world of energy. Can you just give us that winding path that got you where you are today?
1: It definitely has been a winding path. Um, It's been an exciting one. Um, You can tell from my accent, not originally from San Diego, where I'm based now, originally from Liverpool, England. Um, Always brought up to be into adventures and experiences versus materialistic things. Loved geography and environmental science. Geared my life towards being a fast jet pilot with the Air Force. I got sponsored by the Air Force Mm -hmm. to go through university but decided at the end of that, that it wasn't for me and Mm. started traveling around the world. I got to do some crazy things, charity work in South America, training with the Shaolin monks in Northeast China, um, traveling all through Southeast Asia, Australia, New Zealand, and then really kind of- What
0: was it like to train with monks? I just have to, we have to stop there. (laughs) What was that like?
1: That was amazing. That was definitely a life-changing experience, me and three friends. It's kind of amazing how we ended up doing it. It was in the times you know early 2000s where we were using the internet but it wasn't an everyday part of our lives and one of our friends said we just found this thing online it looks pretty interesting it might be a good way to round out our university lives and for i think it was 700 dollars, we got two months worth of training we had to commit to two months minimum and all we got was an email saying you have to be on this train platform on this day at this time and it was like 12 hours northeast of beijing (laughs) And so we, we randomly booked some flights, showed up. Someone met us. They had a translator for us, knowing that we were foreigners. And this was a super unique area. It was um, a traditional temple in the middle of farmland. The local populace were still on donkey and cart. They would drop their kids off at the Whoa. age of three to this monastery. And that's where they'd, they would grow up. That was their school. That was their training. And so, yeah, from 5 a.m. to 5 p.m. almost every day, Apart from the weekends, we'd get abused. <laughs> we would uh, <laughs> we got super fit. We'd get up at 5 a.m. every morning. We'd have to run up and down this hill in the dark. Then they'd make a stretch. And then we'd do Tai Chi as the sun came up to build our chi energy. And then after wow. breakfast, we'd learn Kung Fu all day. And then in the evening, you could fight with the, the local kids. And so that's when you got to practice your skills and do what they called Sander Boxing, which is almost like what we'd call UFC-style fighting. So it was incredible. Um,
0: oh, my goodness. Yeah. That could just be a whole episode uh, talking about that. Uh, yeah. But I have also have a background where I did a ton of traveling. How do you think traveling and that, those kind of really unique experiences informed the next phase of your life?
1: Yeah, I think it's a really overlooked opportunity. I took a year out before university mm-hmm. and a year out afterwards. And then while all my friends were going off and doing – clubbing holidays to ibiza and other places like that you know i spent three weeks hiking from geneva to nice through the french alps and always wanted to go on these kind of adventures and experiences and i think it one makes you really comfortable in yourself two makes you realize that you don't have to be surrounded by people all the time three nature's incredible Mm -hmm. um just we are all in our own ways quite privileged and what we have in our own backyard isn't exactly what everyone else experiences. And they're kind of the experiences that make you realize that there needs to be greater opportunity for all. Definitely. Mm -hmm. I'm not a believer in equal outcomes, but definitely equal opportunities. And it certainly isn't like that today. And it kind of gives you that passion, purpose, mission to go and make an impact.
0: Absolutely. So how did it energize you? What were, what were next steps after the travels?
1: Yeah, it was really amazing. So I had this environmental science degree. I didn't have a clue what to do with it. And the oil and gas industry was booming in Canada. And so I got the opportunity to spend several years cleaning up old oil and gas well sites throughout the Rocky Mountains. So remote areas, living in the boonies and working with hardcore kind of uh, construction crews, digging up old well sites treating and remediating the soil and then converting it back to forestry land so that was really inspiring to be able to take these contaminated lands and turn them back to nature i've got a few tent pads Mm. built on remote sites that i built for myself that i'll have to get back to one day and um and that really then opened up many doors that we were the consulting company i was part of was acquired by a major corporation And there were 40,000 people spread all around the world. So for many, that was, you know, death to the culture of a small team. But for my wife and I, who both met at work, it was an opportunity. So we ended up putting our hands Mm. up to go and live in the Middle East. I spent two years working in and out of Iraq. And that was really the game-changing moment for me, was seeing us extracting oil and gas reserves for our energy-hungry economies, while Mm. the local populace was surviving on two hours of power a day, if that and so the infrastructure wasn't, it was devastated after the war. And you just can't live on that power, especially when it's hot out. <laughs> it's a, it you know, it impacts everything. Energy is the lifeblood of everything. And so I didn't realize at the time, but I went on to do a lot of work for mining, oil and gas, LNG, manufacturing companies all around the world. And my last role was leading the global power consulting business. And that's where I really started with the team I was working with, seeing increasing need for affordable clean reliable power globally and they're just not being a good opportunity or solution for business leaders to access what was right for their business in a really streamlined way so we incubated the idea for several years and then spun it out from the business in 2019.
0: What was the evolution of the incubator phase? I'm curious because yep. we'll get into this more so when we talk about infrastructure, but where do you even begin to try and solve this enormous problem? Like how, how does that even start?
1: Yeah, I was really lucky. So within the corporation that I was working with, we, we had a consulting business. We also had a construction business and an operation business. So I think with a few really gifted people that were within the team I was leading, we realized, one, that there was a pain point in, in the industry. You know, Customers wanted to be able to get access to those solutions, but they didn't know where to start, who to turn to, what was possible. And so we as consultants were charging them huge amounts of money and giving them pretty substandard answers. You know, We're using spreadsheets to do these very complex analyses. And then we'd essentially give them this glossy report and say, now go and figure it out, and it just leads to inaction. Or on the flip side, they were being sold to by people with solutions in the market, you know, solar panels, batteries, gas turbines. But because most business leaders have never really thought about energy ever, they just didn't know who to trust or how to compare options. And so it just led to indecision and inaction. We started testing this. How could we automate the optimization of what is the right system for you, Ariana, to meet your business needs? So we incubated that within the corporation. But then we realized the whole market was actually broken. You know, it was very biased, it was very uncoordinated. And we couldn't correct that from within a corporation. You know, corporates have processes, bureaucracies. And so we submitted an innovation idea, got a small amount of funding, and we used that to then pull together key stakeholders from across all the different aspects of the business. And we rented an Airbnb for a week, and we ideated what could this look like if we had a completely blank slate. And then we presented that back and said, we think there's something here, but it can't be built within the business. We're going to start a new business. And do you want to be a part of that? And so they actually became our first investors to give us some runway. Wow. Yeah. So very entrepreneurial journey almost.
0: Yeah, that is, I mean, I don't think I have heard those many stories (laughs) before (laughs) where essentially you see a problem that your customers have then you're like, oh, hold up. This is not a customer problem. This is an industry problem. And we need to get a bunch of collective minds together to rethink this entire way of working. And then, hey, the company that we work for, we can't actually do this with you. So we're going to actually start this thing. And will you invest? Wow, that's bold. That is bold. Were you scared to do it? That sounds kind of (laughs) scary, but exciting.
1: Yeah, I think um, it's funny because in the moment, no, I think certainly, having a very supportive family helps a lot yeah. I think my ver- very first ever performance review at like the age of 22 they said to me uh, what's your aspiration in the next five years and I said I want to be CEO <laughs> and they they laughed at me and it. kind of um you know just thought this kid's delusional but I think I always had the desire to lead a business and do my you know have control over making an impact on the world so I think, yes, every day is still nerve wracking. It's still scary. It's still, there's a lot of unknowns. I still get punched in the face 50 times a day. Um, (laughs) But the ability to have that impact and actually disrupt an entire industry that's been operating the same way for the last hundred years, that's the risk and the, the exciting aspects of this.
0: So let's talk about how your business is disrupting this industry, and then we'll talk more about the operational tie in. Just give listeners an idea of, of what you're doing on a maybe a macro level, a high level, and then, you know, at a granular level, what does that look like?
1: Yeah. So, macro level, we're all passive consumers of energy today. So, whether it's yourself, me, whether it's all your listeners and their businesses, we all receive energy from what we call utilities and the centralized grid. So we generate power at a big power plant, somewhere remote to where we operate. The power comes down these series of lines and then it gets distributed to our place of work or residence. And so we have no real control over where it comes from, even when we'll get it, what it should cost. And what we're seeing is because the grid, particularly in the US is now coming on 70, 100 years old, it's not as reliable as it should be. It's hard to maintain. It's becoming more expensive to keep operating. And we have you know, changing needs that it wasn't necessarily designed for. And so as such, energy prices are going up. Reliability is going down. Meanwhile, everyone wants to be cleaner and greener, which they can't control mm-hmm. if they're just buying energy passively. So our disruption is supporting businesses to get access to their own on-site energy solutions. So being able to generate and store energy right where they need it. And so our approach is to support those non-technical buyers, the business leaders who know nothing about energy. Here's the opportunity. Here's how much money it can save you. Here's the outage support it can support you through. Here's how much you could reduce your emissions. Here's the system that can meet those needs and we've considered all technologies. So we're completely agnostic, solar, battery storage, Mm. gas, diesel, fuel cells, electric vehicles. So we're not trying to push a solution onto them. We're trying to empower them to see what is the right solution. And then we get them firm quotes from suppliers in the market such that they can then decide who they want to have build this system because they're going to be around for the next 10, 20 years. And so it's all about how do you plan it, how do you deploy it, and then how do you monitor and optimize this system to get the best value for your business? And so it's really just disrupting how people think about energy, how they procure energy, how they supplement their grid power today, because we don't advise people cut the cord and don't buy energy from the utility, but maybe buy energy when it's at its cheapest versus at its most expensive, use it as a backup versus being your only source. And just really creating that energy sovereignty for businesses globally
0: the thing that struck me in what you were saying is that the educational component is incredibly important you're trying to lay that foundation so that you can start to have those conversations before you even talk about solutioning you have to start with the educational component was that a lesson that you learned like you knew out the gate we are gonna to have to educate people, or was it a thing that you learned the hard way where it's like you started to jump into figuring out solutions and then realize, oh, people are many steps back from this conversation and we need to educate first?
1: <laughs> it's it's still hard, honestly, and we learned the hard way. You know, we kind of came into this. COVID kicked in as soon as we launched, which was another challenge for us operationally, but because we couldn't engage with our customers. So we created a product mm. based on what we thought the industry needed. And that vision was you, Ariana, as the business leader of your company, come into our platform, upload a bunch of data, get some insights and self-guide your way through to making this purchasing decision. And what we've realized is, one, people don't even know that they have options beyond utility power. Two, they don't know what on-site energy is. Three, they definitely don't want to be hands-on tools, put in a bunch of data in which they don't even know where to find it. And so we've learned that one, we need to educate the whole market, hence a lot of collateral around blogs, newsletters, podcasts, it's all about how do we educate people? And then two, providing the infrastructure for them to get the outcomes without having to actually do anything themselves, apart from say, I'm interested. And then at Vector, we've now sourced all the data, done the optimization, and we give them the options to choose from and we support them to make the right decision. But it's all, all about really simplifying it, automating it, removing the barriers to entry. We are a marketplace platform. It's all about connecting a supply with demand. But we've built all this other infrastructure just to get people to a point of knowing what it is that they want to buy, which was never really the plan. But it's become a very key component of the whole transition.
0: And I'm also sure from a speed standpoint, things are changing in this industry quickly. So I also can imagine that's a difficult thing to think about if you're, you know, the customer is like, I hear all these things, but what's legitimately something that I need to be thinking about and what's not? What are blockers? What are things I should be investing in? And then, you know, if we're talking 10 years, 15 years down the the path, what's going to actually still be valid? You know, I don't want to, again, spend a ton of money on something that's. Going to become antiquated
1: exactly and so we, the, know,
0: we know it's going to be but yeah I'd like to get a little bit more time out of it right
1: yeah so that's why the platform is now set up to be an entire energy transition plan you know, mm. where do you consume energy today across your portfolio of facilities how much is it costing you what's the emission profile where would you get the greatest return on investment for doing something being able to buy it deploy it and then we monitor it in real time and then support the business to say you know by the way your utility rates have changed. And now one of these other projects that didn't previously make sense now makes sense or the system that you put in five years ago, maybe you could now upgrade it with some new technology and here's all the other benefits. So it's been able to constantly take me on that journey because you're right. This isn't a, a one and done. I'm going to build something and then I've solved all my problems. There's huge mm-hmm. benefits, but the more businesses can stay on top of it, the better.
0: Well, this ties in beautifully to the trifecta of operations. Mm-hmm. You know, people, process, technology. I heard yummy automation words and all these things uh, that you were just talking about. I think for people who aren't necessarily in energy operations, can you just connect the dots for us? When you're thinking about energy, how is operations becoming a part of that conversation? Yep. In my, you know, novice brain, I think it's probably everything. <laughs> but but what are the things that you're thinking about?
1: Yeah, I'd say obviously the key stakeholders in these decisions are one, the finance team. So they're hypersensitive around costs and today they have no control over mm-hmm. their costs. So if you're at the mercy of every year, the utility increase in your rates, five, 10, in some cases, 40% we've seen as high as in here in California. Finance are hypersensitive to that. How can they lock in their costs and know that they've got certainty to plan for their business? Then you've got the like the sustainability leads who are very concerned about sustainability, reducing emissions, hitting corporate targets and objectives. And then you've got the date. you know, the, the plant operators and managers and leaders who are responsible for hitting production targets, making sure that they are, they have no downtime and they're the ones most concerned about outages and resilience, because if you lose power, even if it's just a flicker, it can really impact the operations. And for some more complex businesses the power goes off even for a short amount of time it can then take days to weeks to bring the system back online to full production you know it's samsung several years ago during the texas deep freeze they announced that they oh lost 270 million dollars in that one week due to loss of product loss of production having to bring the systems back online and that's a, that's a pretty extreme version but it just highlights the impacts and especially for businesses with perishable products complex lines, chemical facilities, refineries, oil and gas, safety becomes also a real massive element of this. So yeah, I'd say they're kind of the key stakeholders we're often engaging with and they've all got their own interests, but ultimately Mm -hmm. that's the advantage of these onsite energy systems is you get all three of those as a triple win when you do it right.
0: I'm thinking about those stakeholders. They're all high stakes stakeholders. There's not one that's like a nice to have in that situation, (laughs) you know? All of them to their varying degrees are incredibly vital into thinking about this. So uh, let's start with technology. What are some key pieces of technology that you all lean on to help bring visibility into the energy space for your clients?
1: From a perspective of how we approach it at Vector?
0: Yeah, that would be great.
1: Yeah, so software is obviously key to ensuring that these complex, Systems, because we're talking about hundreds of thousands of variables that impact the right solution. You know, we've kind of moved past the point of just throwing some solar panels on a roof and hoping that that solves all our problems. You know, which combination of technologies will meet the business needs, especially if they are you know, more than just a, a resident. You know, they've got quite complex needs, wants, restrict restrictions in terms of. Real estate space, rooftop, You know, can it handle solar? Do they have car parks? What's their current utility rate? How much energy do they use? When do they use it? What's the solar potential at that site? What's the fuel prices? So for every single location that we adjust into the platform, we capture about 5,000 different data points specific to that site. And then we use that to feed an optimization engine which then considers hundreds of thousands of variables to then recommend the optimal combination of technologies, technically and financially. And so then we're able to show, hey, Ariana, this is where you're at today. But if you do this, you can save X hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. You can reduce your emissions by 20%. You can ride through an outage for up to hours or days, whatever the business needs are. So that's what we focus on. You know, We have our own internal flywheel effect. That we work mm. towards every day and that the top of the flywheel is providing actionable data and intelligence just so people can take the first step with confidence what
0: percentage of your team are data scientists or data analysts like how much of the of your team kind yeah. of makes that up because you're you're talking about thousands of variables and honestly my head is spinning mm. <laughs> even trying to think of what that looks like managing that acquiring that cleaning that like what percent of your team is just focused on that yeah. in itself
1: team of 20 today and essentially half internally focused on product and dev work and half externally focused on education marketing sales so that's the approach today feeling really good about where the products at. so we're hyper focused mm-hmm. on go to market and originating good customers with pain points and needs so that's the focus right now and then we'll keep seesawing between winning work, building the product and then the other way around. So yeah.
0: Honestly, I I really wanna see it in action. I'm just like, I wanna see all this going on behind the scenes, peek under the hood. So when we talk about process within the energy sector, how do you begin to break down the process? Because from my understanding and just the tiny bit that I can gather it's incredibly complicated, all of these processes. And you're not dealing with one particular one. You're probably dealing with multiple types of processes and stakeholders, different parts of the world. Yeah. How do you begin to consider and inform and help people through that process stage?
1: Yeah. So the real key in our minds is placing the decision makers in control of the process. So the way the market's set up today, which we talked on before, a bit before is you've got all these amazing suppliers in the market, constructors, equipment operators, capital providers, but they're all selfishly trying to sell you whatever makes sense for them versus what makes Mm. sense for you. So we really advise baseline where you're at today, assess where you're going to get the greatest return on investment, determine internally what solution is right for you, And then go to market and tell the suppliers exactly what you want them to quote you, such that you get those apples to apples comparisons back. And then you can make a very informed decision around what matters to you. Is it cost? Is it schedule? Is it team? Is it experience? And being able to really select the partner that you want to go on that journey with. And there's four big levers for businesses to consider when they want to go on this journey. We always advise reduce your energy consumption as much as possible through energy efficiency practices first, because there's no point in building a system to generate energy for energy that you may not need later. So reduce your energy consumption, build your onsite energy system to offset as much of your needs as possible. And then you've got options to buy what they call virtual power purchase agreements or renewable energy credits to reduce your emission profile. Mm -hmm. But in a virtual means, you're not actually generating the energy. You're not consuming that energy. You're just buying a way of cleaning up your emissions. So they're the four big Mm -hmm. levers. And so it's about supporting business leaders to understand what those levers are and how they can achieve the best outcomes for whatever their business priorities are, which change.
0: Yeah, and I can imagine for some business leaders that might be the first framework that they have to think about how they can, can control their energy consumption. Where it has felt quite, you're beholden to the companies that are giving you energy, and you don't really feel in control of that. But through all of these, you know, steps and these dials, you can decide what makes most sense. Yeah. It again, that comes back to the people piece, then, right? So it's yep. it can be quite empowering, but also overwhelming. So as you rounded out your team what are some key players that help in connecting the dots for what you're doing internally as a business and what you're doing with your clients
1: yep so internally we always try and match the personality types with the people that we're selling to so you can imagine the likes of the operations teams within businesses they want to have access to data they want to see information (laughs) they want to know it's not going to impact their (laughs) day-to-day operations so yes, yes, we have business
0: continuity, please. exactly.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so we have operational experts who do all the analytics and can convey that message. Then we have the likes of our sales team that can really convey the opportunity to the sustainability teams. Because what we often find for sustainability teams is one, they are typically new in their careers, so they don't necessarily know how to internally fight for money. And so being able to give them the ammunition to say, "We've got these objectives." here's what it's gonna cost us, but here's why we should do it. And here's why you should allocate us some money because they typically don't hold the budgets, which is very interesting. And then obviously for the finance and the, the leadership, being able to then paint the vision. So that's where I like to come in and be more engaged in where should you be going? How should you be thinking about it? Should you work with your board and your executive team to convey the opportunities? So we try and balance that across ops, sales, marketing, Marketing is all about trying to build awareness prior to us even showing up. And then obviously the dev team, they're less customer facing, but they give us all the firepower to deliver the outcomes our customers need without wanting to be in front of them.
0: One of the things that when I think about, you know, talking to clients, I think before I started doing that, I really thought it was sort of, you know, somebody within the sales function talking to a client. And that definitely is a dynamic. When you're talking about more complex products, platform, services. I find that it's rarely one person. It's a team of people that are educated and specialized in all of these different pieces that have to work together to get something moved past the dial line. Yep. Because again, there's going to be that educational component. There's going to be different people of different needs that you're going to be selling to. How have you found working together as a team? Do you think it's like a group effort or do you sort of pass the baton at different mm-hmm. stages? How has that worked for you all?
1: Yeah, we're certainly really embracing the likes of um, some of the AI tech to record meetings and such that we can say a salesperson goes in first, we'll capture the conversation, we'll really try and understand what personality type is it that we're dealing with, what are their Mm -hmm. priorities, who else needs to be involved in future conversations, being able to learn from their tone, their questions, how we should be approaching them. So that's been really exciting in the last, I'd say six months. I'd say it's a constant fine line between definitely being the thought leaders and knowing the technical aspects of this without overwhelming customers. You know, I was just texting Mm -hmm. with a customer this morning or a prospective customer. I asked him for feedback on our team that went in and met them yesterday. And he said, it worked really well because our VP of ops is super technical and she wanted to get into the details, but he said, they came across very technical and very knowledgeable. And maybe with other customers, they'd need to be more salesy and big picture because it'd be quite overwhelming mm-hmm. you know, from his perspective. So it's a real totally. fine line trying to juggle how you approach those conversations yeah. and how deep you go and um, yeah.
0: Yeah, it's always a balance. I, I have experienced it from a technology education standpoint where you just kind of see a glaze happen. Mm. <laughs> Same with operations too. Like I know when I've gone too operational nerd on somebody, there's just this like frozen smile glaze that you're like, oh I lost him. Um, You kind of like, like pull yourself back in and that like it, it happens in a second where yeah. all of a sudden you, you know that you've stepped outside of this space that makes sense because really the things that you're thinking about are quite futuristic. You know, they're incredibly progressive and things that people just don't even have on their radar yet and that is the benefit of what you're doing and it's the challenge as well. So let's talk about the inside scoop. So these are some questions that essentially give us a peek behind the scenes. From the first question, I just wanna talk about the energy sector as a whole. What do you think people who know nothing about the energy sector get wrong about it?
1: Yeah, Uh, the biggest misconception is uh, sustainability comes at the expense of profitability. And I think um, if you approach it the wrong way, absolutely, you know, if you just go and buy a bunch of renewable energy credits and so now you've got increasing energy costs and you're buying credits on top of that to offset your emissions, yes, it's it's bad business. The reason why we're so excited about on-site energy is by deploying these systems, you can actually save a huge amount of money on your energy bills as well as achieving more sustainable outcomes you know we just finished an assessment for a winery in northern california actually and we're able to save them 400 grand a year in energy costs as well as reduce their oh, wow. emissions by 40% and so you can see this isn't a these aren't small dollar amounts it's not saving a few pennies you know a, a big industrial manufacturer in the northeast of the us they have the ability over the life of their asset to save over 10 million dollars in terms of these systems and now with the likes of the inflation reduction act there's very big incentives and tax credits for businesses and so it's a very very good time for people to do this because not only do the systems already pay for themselves very quickly now with the tax credits you can get between 30 and 70 percent tax credits back on every dollar you spend and so they pay super quickly whoa yeah
0: those numbers, when you said uh, winery in California, I was like, oh my God, the energy. <laughs> I immediately, I was like, oh my goodness. It must be interesting because my assumption is that your clients are of all different industries, yeah. of all different sizes. So you're constantly sort of having to flip the script a little bit. Yeah. Are there common themes across the clients that you're seeing that always hold true? Or is there a lot of like context switching?
1: Definitely, you want to be able to talk the right language and then use the right terms with the right stakeholders. I'd say the way the platform's built, it's sector agnostic, so we can, we can kind of um, switch between them quite easily. But definitely from a sales and a marketing perspective, we try very hard to make sure we have the right people on the team that know the specific sectors. I'd say today for sure we're seeing the most success with the manufacturing sector and the food and bev sectors. And they've got very similar pain points, but in slightly different ways. So food and beverage, they've got Perishable products, so they can't afford the power to go They operate on lean margins, so they any cost savings yeah. is a bonus. Because they're consumer-facing, they want to be cleaner and greener. On the manufacturing side, it's more like supply chain pressure. So we're working with an automobile manufacturer right now, and they're being told, if you want to produce the EV for this other company, you have to demonstrate that you're carbon neutral by 2025. And so now they're scrambling to say, how do we achieve that? They're very big energy consumers, so we typically see nice cost savings. So quite different pressure points, but with the same kind of outcomes, if you know what I mean.
0: Yeah, you're like making me have flashbacks (laughs) to when I was uh, (laughs) doing food supply chain stuff. You said both of the things. I was like, it's incredibly stressful. I think anytime that you have a, a product that has a shelf life, every day counts. Every day does, especially if you are in the more like natural food or, you know, the the space where you have less preservatives, you know, an issue with a freight delivery can be massive, massive losses. And then the supply chain too, you know, I think a lot has changed in the last couple of years. Like in the last 10 years, I would say the entire – Options that you have to run a supply chain is, are different. Mm. You know, I was bootstrapping stuff because I was in a startup phase, but still, the the technology was super old and antiquated, and it just wasn't. That's actually why I got into technology because I was like, all these yep. tools suck, and I <laughs> want better ones. <laughs> oh, <brilliant. laughs> um, and when you put both of those together, I can only imagine that getting the the energy. Plan must feel empowering after being quite reactive for so long, having to say, We're actively choosing this. Yes. Which I guess gets me to my next question. When we're talking about deploying on site energy solutions, what do you think is the hardest part about localizing the energy supply?
1: The actual systems themselves, like the technology is really good now. You know, cost of solar and storage has come down over 80% in the last 10 years. So it's very, very cost competitive. The systems are very reliable. The constructors exist to go and deploy these systems quite efficiently. There's even amazing capital providers in the market. So businesses don't want to spend a penny financing these systems. Other people will come in, finance them, build them, own them, operate them, and just sell you energy back that's less than what you pay the utility. So all those things are amazing. But it's now how do we create, one, the enabling technologies to give the business leaders the visibility of what the opportunity is and the confidence to act. And then secondly, the utilities are certainly not embracing this with open arms and making it super easy for companies to interconnect to the grid, negotiate rates, get systems permitted. So that's going to be a bit of a continuing battle. And we're seeing quite a few states now realizing that this is a challenge and there's some more favorable states to operate in. But there's certainly states within the US and places around the world where it's still a challenge to get the support to do this from a regulatory perspective, but you can tell from the likes of the Inflation Reduction Act, the fact that the government is incentivizing this, the intent is to create more flexibility in the system. So it's, it's really just, I'd say, the old school mentality. You know, The utilities have operated the same way for a hundred years and rightfully mm-hmm. so, they're super, super focused on safety and reliability, but they don't invest any money in innovation, you know, less than 1% of their budgets. But they are the biggest, Mm. um, biggest spenders in terms of politics and manipulating policy and regulations. And so it just shows that they're in this very protectionist phase that they want to protect their monopolies instead of embracing the opportunity to um, Mm. change the whole dynamic of the system
0: it's very interesting because i am not in your industry at all but it you're articulating the feelings i have felt for many years around frustrations that i had no idea how to articulate mm-hmm. <laughs> which is you know we want to sp- see a future that actually is possible and the fear is if the infrastructure isn't there then we're always going to be chasing our tails and that needs to stop yeah so it's refreshing that people like you and, and your team are proactively trying to figure out a way forward that helps to educate people, but also helps to make a solution realized yeah. in today.
1: Yeah, it's really um, it's really important. Like we've got three core values that we operate by every day, challenge limits, because this whole industry needs you to be got challenged. To. <laughs> adapt purposefully because there's too many knee-jerk reactions so how do we actually do this with purpose and then empower co-creation no one's going to do this on their own so how do we do it together Mm. and I think uh, you're absolutely spot on you know there's the big push for electric vehicle deployments right now and in the same week that Governor Newsom here in California last year said we're going to stop selling gas cars in the future, and he set the date and he committed to it It was the same week that he was asking people not to charge their cars because they were worried about blackouts during certain periods of time. And just the infrastructure balance is very complex right now because um, we haven't planned purposefully. And we're trying to achieve Mm. these political objectives without it necessarily being considered operationally. That's going to be an ongoing battle. But I like that we're making the commitments because it will force us all Mm. to innovate to get there. But I think they're being made in a fairly blind manner right now.
0: Yeah. Now, if someone is listening to your journey and they're like, I want to get into this industry, you're inspiring me. Where would you recommend people begin to start to get into it?
1: Yeah. Well, it's a super exciting space and I think there's a real shortage of people. So I think for anyone excited about getting into it, whether it's startups, whether it's very mature businesses that produce equipment or construct these systems There's a huge amount of opportunities. I think certainly to get the way I came through from a consulting perspective and an engineering company, that was a really nice way to get a very broad cross section of how the industry operates um, before I dug deep. But yeah, I'd encourage people to reach out to the businesses that they're most excited about, because most of them are probably desperate Mm -hmm. for access to key people. And because the, this is a fairly young industry, it's not like if you don't have this experience on your resume, you don't qualify. We're all learning on the fly. We're all figuring it out together. And I think that's what makes it super exciting.
0: Man, I'm jazzed. I'm <laughs> like, how can I how can I be a part of this? This seems really interesting. Um, this has been just... Such a treat. I really appreciate you breaking this down for the listeners obviously but for myself as well. I've always been curious but have kind of been a little confused with all of the contradictory information that I hear around it. So it's interesting that you're approaching it from that sort of agnostic mindset to just help to, to show people their options and to get them moving forward one step at a time. That's really powerful. So thank you for that. We're gonna wrap up with some rapid fire questions to learn more about you, Gareth, as a human being. So we're just gonna go quickly, uh, whatever comes to your mind when I uh, ask it, just go for it. Okay. So the first one is, what is the favorite part of your day?
1: Walking my son to school every morning. Mm. That's amazing.
0: Oh, that sounds awesome. I just pictured it in my head as you said (laughs) it. what book are you currently reading or what audiobook are you listening to?
1: Um, actually big into podcasts right now, so I'd say less on the other two, but um, High Performance or The Diary of a CEO are my go-tos most days. I try and listen to them while I'm working out.
0: Love it. What is the best purchase you've made under $50?
1: Ooh, that's a really tough one. Let's see.
0: It's so funny. This one really stumps people.
1: Probably a really good hazy IPA.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's a good one. Uh, What is your favorite quote?
1: Live life on the edge or you're taking up too much space.
0: And what is the most important lesson you've learned in your life so far?
1: Say yes, embrace the journey, dig deep, grit it out, get it done.
0: And last question, which is, what would you like to be when you grow up?
1: (laughs) I would like to be the CEO of the business that has disrupted the entire energy industry and is the platform every business leader in the world thinks about when they think about energy.
0: Amazing. If people are listening and they're like, I want to just follow everything that's happening with Gareth and the team, where can they follow you? Where can they find you?
1: Yep. Definitely our website is a really great resource for blogs, articles, Vector, dot We did just start our own podcast called Renewable Rides. Yeah. So definitely check that out. Yeah. And um, yeah, LinkedIn is probably where I'm most active. So come and find me on LinkedIn.
0: Amazing. We appreciate you so much uh, for sharing your knowledge so generously. And a big thanks to all the Secret Ops listeners out there. Please remember to follow us wherever you find your podcasts and check us out at secret ops.com. See you next time. Hey, listener, do you want to be a top operator in business and in life? Well, we at Secret Ops are here to help you do just that. Check out our monthly Secret Ops newsletter with exclusive intel just for you. From bonus content to secret resources, we've given you the VIP access. To sign up, check out the link in the description. And as always, thanks for listening.